you really can see the story of America through the way that these spaces are taken care of. And you can see who is sovereign and who has autonomy, who is considered a citizen and mm-hmm. non-disposable, just based off of the way that these treat these spaces exist and like whether or not we even know about them or not. So Hello, 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 hello. Time. Time. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a while since our last rendezvous. Life has taken me on quite a whirlwind journey as of late, balancing work and the demands of school, the hustle and bustle of everyday life, of course, and the unyielding march of time. I'm here now, and I will be your guide today through the realms of material culture and the tangible wonders that shape our understanding of the world. So now, let us rekindle this podcast that has been neglected for far too long. Let's jump back into it. So grab your favorite beverage, settle in, and let the exploration of ideas begin anew on the Materialists Podcast. Welcome back to the Materialists Podcast. I am Nigel Rudolph, public archaeologist with the Florida Public Archaeology Network Central Region. So my plan is to get episodes back and going all regular like again. I'm not making any promises, but I wanted to catch you all up on what the skinny has been for the past several months. I went back to school for historic preservation at the University of Florida, which has been taking up a lot of my time. Um, Just taking a couple of classes a semester, chugging right along. I'm in thesis now, and my thesis is focused on the old Groveland Cemetery in Groveland, Florida. Originally named the Oak Tree Union Colored Cemetery of Taylorville. My life is snuggled deep into historic cemeteries of Florida, as I've mentioned in past episodes. But I'm also keeping up with other FPAN things. We started a very interesting archaeological survey on a parcel of land here in Gainesville in the Northeast Historic District, a.k.a. the Duck Pond neighborhood. Now, not surprisingly, (laughs) we return to the sacred grounds that hold the echoes of resilience, resistance, and remembrance, historic African-American cemeteries. Specifically, we're going to delve into the profound narratives that 
are woven into the fabric of Groveland and Rosewood, two communities whose histories are both inspiring and heartwarming, but also heart-wrenching. Join us as we navigate through the tombstones that stand as silent witness to the struggles and triumphs of generations past. Maybe we could change the name of the podcast to uh, Everything You Wanted to Know About Cemeteries But Were Afraid to Ask. Oh, that's actually not bad. (laughs) That's not a bad... um, That's not a bad option right there, actually. Everything you wanted to know about African-American cemeteries in the state of Florida, but we're afraid to ask. It's kind of wordy, so maybe we'll just stick with the Materialist podcast, but that's what, once again, we're going to be discussing today. And I'm going to be featuring a couple of interviews that I did with two amazing researchers and scholars who have written extensively and done extensive work in the world of cemeteries. One is Nardos Iob. She is a project manager and researcher at University of California, San Diego, Center for Human Development. Before that, she was back on the East Coast at Virginia Commonwealth University studying political science and African-American studies. And that's where she wrote an amazing article that spoke specifically to a lot of the issues that I have been examining in regards to the Groveland Cemetery. The article is entitled Perpetual Neglect, an Insight into the Implications of a Forgotten and Neglected Historic Black Cemetery. It was featured in the 2020 Volume 5 edition of the American Political Science Review. And I just happened to stumble on it while I was doing all this background research for the writing of a National Historic nomination for the old Groveland Cemetery. And it was a, a joy to read. It's sad to see that similar issues have been seen and documented throughout the country regarding uh, the plight of African-American cemeteries. A really fascinating article, and it was a joy to talk to Nardos. So I'm going to feature some clips from her interview here in a little bit. But first, what else is going on? Let's check the the papers here, see what else is going on. Um, What else? I picked up a new book. I picked up a new book, hot off the presses, from the University of Georgia Press. It's titled Grave History, Death, Race, and Gender in Southern Cemeteries, edited by Cami Fletcher and Ashley Towell. Towell? Towley? <laughs> Towley? I don't know. <laughs> I'm a d- um, Edited by two wonderful people. One chapter, wonderfully enough, was co-written by Dr. Antoinette Jackson, the outstanding professor and chair of the anthropology department at the University of South Florida, who with full disclosure, is who I work for. So kudos to Dr. Jackson. Um, I also had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Jackson about um, African-American cemeteries and her project, which is the the Black Cemetery Network, a couple of months ago, and that was fantastic. And that'll hopefully be coming to y'all in the next, next month or so. But let's see, what else, what else, what else, what else? I have a new assistant. Mandy Wagner-Pelkey. She's phenomenal. She's also outstanding. She's really kicked butt on our social media and brought us back up into the 21st century, I guess. She's helped me out on History Bike already, History Bike Gainesville, which is another sort of facet of the things I do for FPAN. Um, We're going working on a new Archaeology on Tap presentation coming up, and I will see her in about 
30 minutes, she's going to help me dig some holes on this duck pond project. She is a museum studies grad student and again, phenomenal. Couldn't have asked for a better uh, person to have on the team. And wink, wink, if anybody from FPAN Pensacola is listening, uh, I would like to give Mandy more time. So we need more money. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Let's see what else I'm continuing. Let's check the papers again. Um, I am continuing my restoration work at the Bethlehem Methodist Episcopal Cemetery in Archer, just about 30 minutes down the street. See, I have been repairing headstones and resetting headstones and cleaning headstones and singing and dancing with headstones. I'm getting very close to wrapping it all up. Uh, had a really productive weekend out there. Fingers crossed. Um, I'm done by year's end, which is in like three weeks. <laughs> so we'll see if that happens. Oh, and of course, last but not least, which is sort of what this entire episode is going to be centered around and probably um, so many more episodes until it's forever uh, part of my history, is Groveland. Groveland, Groveland, Groveland. The old Groveland Cemetery, also known as the Oak Tree Union Colored Cemetery of Taylorville. I prefer the old Groveland Cemetery because I just don't like that word colored. Yes, I know that's what it was historically called by the African-Americans that are interred at the cemetery and by their descendants. However, I don't like the word. So I will forever call it the Old Groveland Cemetery. And if I have to make the addition by adding the Oak Tree Union Colored Cemetery of Taylorville, I will. But still, Old Groveland Cemetery. Let's see. It's a massive project. It's going very well and really moving forward in the last couple of months. The fire chief of Groveland, um, Chief Kevin Carroll, is the director of the whole project. He's a a fascinating man and super excited to be working with him. And uh, he certainly cares so much about this history and paying respect to um, the folks that are buried in the cemetery and to their their living descendants. He purchased a bunch of unknown markers because we counted 239 unmarked graves. Following a GPR survey, they found about 239 unmarked graves total within the one acre parcel and the chief went ahead and purchased unknown markers that say unknown grave markers they're about 85 pounds each or something uh, for every single one of those so i've been lately i've been going out there and putting those exactly where they need to be so we can move forward with the project and there's going to be some nifty sidewalks there's going to be some nifty kiosks all kinds of nifty stuff for folks coming to enjoy the sacred space Okay, well, I'm over-talking it, so let's go ahead and jump into our first interview. A couple of months ago, I had the chance to chat with Dr. Edward Gonzalez Tennant. He is assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Texas in Rio Grande Valley. We caught up. Hadn't talked to Ed in quite a while. He is a friend of the podcast, and he's been on before. Um, But we talked about not only the work that he left doing here in Florida, but we caught up on some of the amazing community-based archaeology that he's doing down in Texas. So really great stuff, really interesting conversation. 
and I edited out all my really bad jokes. So nobody had to, nobody has to suffer through those. But <laughs> enjoy, and we'll catch you all back in a little bit. I'm Edward Gonzalez Tennant. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley uh, in beautiful Edinburgh, Texas. I was formerly at the University of Central Florida. I did my PhD at the University of Florida. Should I talk about like my research? I'm going to make you now have to like edit this. But yeah, would you like to tell me a little bit about your research, especially what you've got going on there in, in Texas? I know things have kind of switched up from what you were doing here in Florida. Sure. So, so I, uh, I have a couple of research interests. Um, you know, I did my PhD in Florida at the site of Rosewood, and that was sort of a combination of interests in both African American history, African American archaeology, but also digital archaeology. So, using um, computer mapping, like geographic information systems, remote sensing, three D modeling, virtual worlds—all of those sorts of things uh, have always interested me. Um, those combined in Rosewood, um, the computer mapping allowed me to uh, understand Rosewood's spatial layout based primarily from documentary sources, since the majority of the town remains privately owned and getting access to do excavations is difficult. Although I should say we've done excavations, you know, and other things at probably about a dozen properties in the area. So not impossible. But, you know, the properties we couldn't look at, we had to do something besides dig. So that's where the digital uh, really allowed me to explore the entire community and do landscape um, change over time and, and so forth. And most recently, finding myself in Texas, I've started working locally here. I'm expanding out of just historical. I'm doing a little bit of prehistoric research. Uh, and then, you know, I guess the first big project was a collaborative project this summer, which I did with a local family. They've been here for multiple generations, at wow. least seven or eight generations. Um, and we were digging basically a ranchero. So this was the family's, if not first, one of their earliest sort of agricultural and cattle ranching lands that they they would have had in the 1800s so we had ruins we had uh well structures domestic structures we did archaeology my students came out from the local university and this is a local field school and now we're you know this fall and moving on we'll process and analyze the materials and keep working with the family to produce a report and hopefully get in Texas, the Texas Historical Commission has what they call a undertold historical marker program. So the goal eventually, or at least one of the goals, is to get one of those markers placed at uh, the landscape. Nice. So like you did in Florida, it sounds like you're still working within a community and you really see the value of, of keeping the archaeology within the community. And what is valued by the community is what you're researching. Why do you think that's the direction you go as opposed to a more generalized view of archaeology that's trying to feed your needs rather than a specific communities. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, particularly with historical sites, uh, and I think, you know, this is also the case with indigenous or, you know, what I and others sometimes call prehistoric uh, sites. You know, part of this is, I think, a dedication to making sure that anything I do as an archaeologist remains relevant. Right. And one of the easiest ways to be relevant is to just ask the communities 
that you want to work in, around, even tangentially uh, to. What do you find interesting, fascinating, important, valuable, et cetera, with this site, with this kind of history? You know, and I've written a bit about this. So there, I think there's this like almost like a political commitment. I want to work with the public because I want the public to care about what I do. Right. But also, quite frankly, doing this has almost always alerted me to new research questions and new directions. And so I think in a lot of ways, um, it's not just sort of like, you know, this social commitment. I think it actually makes me a better scientist. Oh, for, I totally agree. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Um, I think that was the first time I met you was on and uh, we were doing a GPR survey after extensive clearing of a cemetery area in Rosewood. Am I correct that that cemetery is now not accessible? The property owner has now changed his mind? Well, you know, I want to tread lightly here because I don't want to stir pots or step on toes. But um, yeah, I, I believe that, you know, I can I can safely say that my time working on that property and there has been additional stuff since we visited in, I think that was like 2014, 2015. Yeah, 2014, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have worked a few years since then. Um, at this point, yeah, I, I don't see myself returning to that property. Um, and, you know, I I think I, I understood that was probably going to be the case for multiple reasons, um, an aging landowner, growing hostilities, et cetera, right? And so, you know, I documented everything, including 3D scanning of grave markers, all the GPR, all the mapping. So, you know, now I can virtually return to that site really anytime I choose to. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's a really fascinating way to look at it, too. It's a wave of the future, Ed. Do you think it would be safe to call yourself a social activist archaeologist? I've always looked at you that way. Well, how dare you label me anything? No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I think so. You know, I certainly archaeologists are using um, terminology like that, you know, and I have not shied away from talking about topics like social justice, social justice education, uh, you know, obviously in the current political climate in America and even elsewhere, you know, these terms have all taken on new meanings, sometimes right. erroneous ones, sometimes meaningless meanings, if that's such a thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I would certainly, you know, consider myself in that line, you know, at being politically engaged. Um, but, you know, that's a term that I think a lot of folks outside of a certain circle of academics or archaeologists or researchers wouldn't necessarily understand. They might assume that means I'm taking, you know, a particular political stance. When, of course, for me, I, I simply mean I'm I'm working with things that matter in the present, that matter to present communities. So, you know, African American communities are often facing, and unfortunately, we're in a present moment where they're once again facing renewed efforts to erase, diminish, or otherwise um, downplay their history, their commitment to this country's history, and so forth. So, you know, in terms of, you know, I think of social activists, I think of somebody who's who's marching in the streets, who's doing protests. And, mm -hmm. you know, I have done that as both an individual and, uh, I guess, as an archaeologist. Um, you know, and I think of Randy McGuire's work, Archaeology of Political Action, which I think now is 15 years old. But, you know, he's very clear, like archaeology is not the sort of thing that's at the front of a picket line. <laughs> but archaeology, like all historical research, all science that deals with the past as well, 
we're producing narratives and knowledge that people who might be at the front of that picket line rely on sometimes, you know, to define their very sort of knowledge of of topics, um, culture and so forth. So I, you know, I've never referred to myself that way, although I appreciate being referred to as that way, because it's hard for me to sort of see that as not being what archaeologists do, if that makes sense. Oh, like, yeah, totally makes sense. Um, do you feel explain to me why you think historic cemeteries of what eth whatever ethnicity are valid for studying as archaeological research? I mean, uh, cemeteries are historical texts, I mean, in, in, in oftentimes literal ways. So we can start with that, I think, right, as like a source of historical data, they can sometimes be unparalleled. And that can go for any community, because we know whether we're talking about race, ethnicity, class, gender, the list goes on. Many communities have little or no footprints in traditional historical documentary records. Right. Cemeteries are a source where that can be preserved. Even basic demographic data about the past is oftentimes preserved in a cemetery in the way it might not be even in something as official as the U.S. Census, which, um, you know, sites I've worked at and certainly others, we find um, absences in the U.S. Census, particularly in terms of race, um, going back, you know, all the, the, the entire history of the census that has gotten better until at least recently. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, certainly in some places, it's not uncommon, for instance, to have maybe a quarter or more of certain populations not appear in one census or another for various reasons. And even when the census it does record somebody, it might do a poor job of recording anything else, what they did, um, right. who they lived with and so forth. So cemeteries can often act, you know, as um uh, a way of filling in those gaps. So, you know, from a historical researcher point of view, there are treasure troves of data that might not exist elsewhere. And even if they do exist elsewhere, right, corroborating evidence, bringing multiple lines of evidence together is how you do stronger historical stuff. Material research. evidence. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's material evidence. You know, we can uh, talk about other reasons, too. I mean, getting back to the the point about working with communities, communities care about burial grounds. So if you want to be an engaged uh, scholar or researcher and you want to care about what the communities who may be impacted by your research care about, then you care about cemeteries. Cemeteries also, even from like a more abstract or theoretical perspective, you know, if you want to talk about landscape or memory and so forth, cemeteries are material like points on the ground where all of these things, landscapes, communities, memory, community memory, collective memory, all of these become anchored to place and time, right? Obviously, uh, in cemeteries. You know, I don't know who said that, uh, but it, it sounds like a, either it's a red herring <laughs> or <laughs> it's said by somebody who's perhaps not overly interested in the historical period. Yeah, I, I I'm thinking that it really the idea that you could disregard cemeteries importance in this aspect really is the person who said that it comes from such a place of privilege that they don't have the experience of like you just mentioned losing, you know, historic records or you know, going through the the historic census where people's names, you know, the names of African-American folks in the communities are recorded wrong because the census takers, you know, for whatever reason. It, yeah, it just seems like that having the opinion that those 
records aren't important is, um, you know, it has to come from the experience of not not having known those things. I agree 100%. I mean, that comes from a position of, well, I can find my family right. in the records. Right. I, can right. exactly. I, can, I mean, it's the same sort of thing, like it doesn't affect me, so it mustn't exist, right? Yeah. Um, it's, that, it's that level. I mean, I have a great example about the census from Rosewood, where the 1910 census taker did a great job. We know, you know, who was sending their kids to school and to what ages, where their jobs were, what they were doing, et cetera. The 1920 census taker and 1920, obviously being an important census years, considering Rosewood is destroyed in 23, didn't record any of that information. And I would say that, I mean, going through that data, the impression I get is a census taker who, because of the time period, was almost certainly white and male. Um, either felt it unimportant to accurately record um, the black town, quote unquote, of Rosewood, or perhaps didn't feel comfortable, Going you know, there. traveling into that town. Either way, you know, I can only speculate at his motivation, but the the result is, you know, it's sometimes, I mean, we have other data and we can infer some of these things, but, you know, losing that richness of data for that census year for this one community is a really deep impact. And yeah, if, if, if you can't understand how, you know, that's sort of an erasure, I mean, their names are still showing up, right. In other places, that's not even happening. So, you right. know, mm -hmm. in an important place today, you know, nobody would have thought in 1920 that they couldn't, even if this census taker would have been politically aligned in such a way, it's like, Oh yeah, I want, I don't want them to, you know, be considered their homes or, mm -hmm would have never predicted how his actions could potentially help obfuscate that history. I know we're sticking on cemeteries a lot, but that's kind of my wheelhouse. And I'm really curious about this idea of like desecration of sacred sites. Instead of being able to attack people, often uh, these sacred sites are going to be attacked. And so I don't know in your experience, whether it's with Rosewood or other locations or even things that you that hint at that something like that happening in Texas. Do you see that often that cemeteries are often the the kind of the focus of anger and violence? Well, cemeteries and the surrounding landscapes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we can start with Rosewood um, and I would almost say, I mean, kind of like. Like what you're asking about is almost like desecration as a form of political speech Yes, now, that I want to support, but. That's, you know, I mean, racist speech, whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it. But, yeah, I think it's I I think that's a really appropriate way of looking at it. I mean, you know, Rosewood, the historical marker, which was, you know, paid for and organized by descendants and installed um, with a Republican governor in attendance, Governor Bush, um, in 2004, quickly became and probably still remains, although this is tapered off recently, um, the most vandalized historical marker in the state of Florida, um, you know, and talking to the historic markers program during my dissertation. So that's a long time ago, 12 <laughs> plus years now. Um, and, and within a couple of years of that, but they commented that I I want to say something like in the first two years, it was vandalized. And in this case, vandalism often meant like tearing it out of the ground, running it over you know, so within the first, I think, two years, it had happened at least half a dozen times, you know, so that's like every three or four months, somebody's vandalizing 
um, the the marker in in a way that requires the state to take some sort of like we have to repair this. And if you drive out there today, it's on, you know, these historical markers are typically I mean, you, you're going to know this, right? A single pole with the sign on top. Right. This marker has poles on both sides, a frame. Both poles are sunk into, uh, you know, a layer of concrete. <laughs> wow. None of that existed even 10 years ago. This is partly the state's reaction to reinforcing that sign. You know, and so that's something that's happening, you know, relatively recently and is happening even before the political polarization we've sort of come to expect in the country over the last six, seven years. Right. Um, the cemetery itself, um, you know, I and this is a point I think the landowner and I disagree on, but I feel very confident that several of the grave markers and perhaps the graves themselves show sign of vandalism or desecration. And, you know, there's a large marker there. This is the marker of a member of the Goins family. So it's a large sort of tower-like, well, large, large for the site, you know, three, three and a half feet tall. It's been split. It looks like there's clear evidence of where somebody's hit it with a mallet or a sledgehammer. You know, you can, it, it's very clear where you see the damage occurring that, you know, it's flaking off, it's chipping off in a certain way. This um, is not happening from a fallen tree branch. Not at all. No, I mean, and I mean, yeah, very clearly. And of course, you know, I have a 3D model of that grave. Oh, but to get back to the point about, I mean, you know, people not knowing this is happening, developers, I mean, here in Texas and elsewhere, I don't want to be too specific, but certainly, yeah, prior to, um, you know, the 60s, when we have federal legislation that enacts, you know, certain protections. I mean, here in Texas, South Texas and elsewhere, you know, people would excavate indigenous burials mm. and it'd be in the, you know, you'd get pictures of dudes with cigarettes dangling out of their lips, holding the crania of indigenous people. You know, this is newspaper clippings, right. you know, I wouldn't share that today. Right. But, you know, I think one of the things that comes from that. I think this is a maybe even a connective thing or a bridge between indigenous and black and other communities, um, neither of which community I belong to. I just want to be clear about that. Right. Um, <laughs> that, you know, it gets I mean, I see, for instance, like with, you know, indigenous communities, development occurs. You find out that perhaps this is a site where an indigenous burial or even burial ground was disturbed. And then you have people who are not members of that community all of a sudden saying, oh, well, where are the, you know, where are the quote unquote Indians at, you know, to help stop this development? And it's sort of like, well, where were the rest of us at right. in the 40s and 50s and 60s when somebody was posing with an indigenous ancestor skull on the cover of the local newspaper, you know, and I'm not trying to speak for any indigenous community. I will I think I'll speak for white people who dug up people um, <laughs> and say that that was a really bad, stupid, bad choice, egregious thing to do. Um, and yeah, you know, I mean, so the descendants of the people who dug that up, I don't think have as much of a right to sort of call on the indigenous communities or black community. Or it's like, oh, we need your help. Why aren't you here fighting for this now? And it's like, well, let, let's look at the past 400 years. What were you fighting for? You know, so, I mean, that's a mm. little off topic, but, but yeah. Anyways, Ed, I think we should wrap it up. Please give me a plug for like what you got going on. Um, Anything getting written 
that we can read? Nothing that is guaranteed to be published in a specific place yet. Uh, <laughs> okay. A couple books I'm working on, one co-authored. Uh, I, th- I guess the biggest thing is I'm, you know, the field school I taught this summer, right? I'm in the lower Rio Grande Valley. Um, this was the first field school we had since in the region, right? Since 1976. Holy cow. And, um, and, you know, this is a local field school and, uh, you know, we had great turnout. We had news coverage. The, clearly the communities in the area value this research. If I want to give a shout out, it's going to be thank you, UTRGV, uh, for being so supportive for, you know, getting this stuff. And um, thinking like the Laboratory of Valley Archaeology is what's taking shape. And we're going to train generations of archaeologists from the valley to do the archaeology of the valley. That's awesome, Ed. And I will continue to call you a social activist archaeologist, <laughs> even if you don't want to wear that hat. <laughs> I wear, um, I, I'm bald. I have to wear hats. So yeah, wear that's any- true, man. I, the sun is intense down there, I imagine. Yes. <laughs> All right, brother. So, I appreciate your time. Yes. Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, joking on a Trisket. Man, Ed is the jam. Ed is the jam. He always seems to have some of the most insightful things to point out. So anyways, thank you, Ed. So that was a, a that was a really fantastic interview from Ed Gonzalez Tennant. Uh, Google him. You can find him all over the internet. He's written a bunch of uh, fascinating articles um, that I highly recommend y'all check out. So next up, without any further rambling on my part we're going to hear from scholar researcher general awesome human being nardos iob on some of the issues that she wrote about in her article perpetual neglect and insight into the implications of a forgotten neglected historic black cemetery now i gave a full sort of introduction to nardos at the beginning of the episode and we're going to jump sort of about a quarter of the way into the interview, where I had just finished giving her a very brief explanation and history of the the old Groveland Cemetery and the circumstances by which I came to start working there and doing my research at a Groveland. So there's a distinct similarity between the Evergreen Cemetery that Nardo speaks about in her article and the history of the Groveland Cemetery. That is such an interesting story. And to hear that, like, that is like the history of like, like, it sounds very similar to a lot of like African American cemeteries, like just the trajectory of how it kind of came to be. Um, Because like in, I, well, I I guess our call got cut up when I was telling you how I got into like, so I, it originally started as this like project for like my like African American studies thesis. And everyone was kind of told to like, think about how to address the situation at Evergreen and like what it would look like, how the, so basically a nonprofit had been started by the city because they had won some sort of grant to um, kind of not necessarily restore, but rehabilitate. I guess the ultimate goal was to restore and turn it, but like maybe transform it into other things. And so they kind of wanted to help, like, I guess, use our labor to like reimagine the space Mm -hmm. and what, they could do and so the idea and slash evergreens like 
um, history was kind of presented to us by people who had been doing the private cleanups for about a decade, plus like some archaeologists that had been looking at the place because like um, BCU is just like the big research school in Richmond. And Richmond just has that like crazy history that I, I mean, I talk about it in my like paper, but it it goes so far beyond that. And oh, yeah. like, it was like one of two ports for like all slaves that entered the U.S. for a while, if not like a good amount of time. That in New Orleans were like where most people passed. And so, I mean, one could argue that it's haunted, but it's like a lot more than that. You know, it's just that history. So um, anyways, the archaeologists basically kind of gave us their own history, gave us their sum- summation of like what they were seeing at the different cleanups that they were at. And my original, my Original idea was to look at um, the trash. Uh, yeah, that was fascinating. To sex work because there was a bunch of um, there were a bunch of like condom wrappers, and they mentioned that like how frequently they would find these condom wrappers scattered all throughout the cemetery, and. It, apparently it's like a thing in archaeology where it's like if you find those it's or urban archaeology that like it kind of indicates that sex work is like kind of happening there because like why else would i mean like you know not very I mean, romantic it wouldn't be like <laughs> <laughs> the cemetery is not the best you know like little cute spot to be right. at you know so as i was like whoa like that's crazy i like i would love to see what that what what that means. And so my whole paper was actually just going to look into like possible sex work that happened, but like I could not find any any evidence, at least in the time that I was given, which was like three months. So like, but like my paper ended up transforming as I actually like went because like, so when I started this idea or the paper had started, we had not actually visited Evergreen. We were like, even like, they were like, you could go, but it's kind of dangerous. Don't go at night, whatever. But no one actually like went and like we just like wrote our papers from afar, which was like so weird. But I ended up taking um like a year and a half break in between that for off like just off of school. And so um I didn't really think about the project, but when I came back to it, I was like, wait, if how am I like they were like, you have to do a thesis. And I was like, well, I started this thesis about Evergreen, and I don't know if that's still the theme. And they were like, no, it's not, but you can continue to do it. And so I was like, okay, let me go see what's going on at Evergreen and what's going like how I could maybe like fit this into like what I'm doing right now. And after going there, I was like amazed just like how different it was in comparison to like all of the other spaces that I had visited. Like I write about Hollywood Cemetery a little bit in my paper and that's supposed to be like the, like I'm from DC. Arlington Cemetery is probably our like biggest like attraction. And it was kind of like that, like Arlington Cemetery, like all the celebrities are kind of like buried in Hollywood Cemetery. And I lived that I lived in that neighborhood quite a bit, like for like about a year and a half when I first moved to Richmond. So I was really familiar with the idea to like think of like the aesthetics and the differences between like Hollywood Cemetery being nestled in this like white working class or formerly working class neighborhood that was like at one point really like prestigious and like the whole cemetery is prestigious has like 24 hour security. I don't know, like it's well funded. It has beautiful views. You can see like there's five presidents buried there. And then to go to Evergreen, other people that are lauded in the city are buried there but it is completely overturned graves like all over the place like graves broken into mausoleums just like shattered open and so it was just so it was crazy to me to see that stark difference in the same city 
after visiting it and like realizing that like no one else was writing their paper on evergreen i was like okay so how am i how am i going to do this and at the time i was commuting from dc to richmond and so i was like maybe i'll try to like incorporate like if this is a trend that happens in different cemeteries throughout like the south or even the east coast maybe this is something that like i can like draw like larger attention to so um i started looking at like cemeteries in dc and i realized that there was like very this was a very similar trajectory for black cemeteries in general like there is a pretty now infamous cemetery that is being uncovered in georgetown in dc i don't know if mm. you're familiar with that uh-uh. no i used to ride my bike I, I lived in adams morgan for about six months i love that <laughs> Yeah, so Georgetown was apparently a Black neighborhood in, like, the early, like, 1900s, like, during the Jim Crow era, and there was a church that, like, um, existed, and the church, I think, still stands, but the cemetery is definitely built over, and it was, like, paved over, Um, but there's still parts that peek out, and so there has been, like, a group trying to do, like, trash pickups and kind of like I guess rehabilitating it but their efforts have been kind of like really slowed down by the fact that like it's all volunteer based and like that's the whole thing with all of this is that it's volunteer based and so it like it's really hard and it really is like based off of like the good of the people who want to like tell the story you know but yeah it was like something there that there was like in Georgetown but like also in Northeast there was um the cemetery called Brooklyn it was in one of the like predominantly black uh, neighborhoods that is still is like part of like that demographic is still predominant and I was also not allowed to go into there either mm. because they just didn't have security but their gates were locked so I guess you had to do something by appointment or you had to know someone Interesting. To, like, get in there but like they had a very similar story and previously I think it was like a decade decade ago they were also hosting cleanups and trying to rehabilitate it but then those efforts kind of stalled I sent them a message on Facebook about I guess it's like three years now um and I think someone responded to me maybe like last year and was like no so I'm like happy to see like um to check in on that again because I would be interested to see what that history is but like it's just wild to think about like like you see it's only like like an hour and a half radius away from there but like this story kind of extends to like cemeteries in new york a lot of like wall street was just is an african burial ground that is it's just i guess casually like everyone knows that but maybe doesn't know that but it's just like there's a plaque somewhere in new york that you can walk by and it says large like (laughs) african burial under the streets yeah Everything else is just, but it's like constantly being dug up, not necessarily like valued or like, I don't know, celebrated in the same way that like, I don't know, ground zero. Like you really can see the story of America through the way that these spaces are taken care of. And you can see who is sovereign and who has autonomy, who is considered a citizen and Mm -hmm. non-disposable just based off of the way that these treat these spaces exist and like whether or not we even know about them or not so it's wild to know that like that is literally still this a, a very similar trend but like in florida you know and it makes me wonder like what about here in california you know like it's i don't know the racialized politics are very interesting out here um yeah. it's not as um people aren't as willing to like recognize those dynamics because it seems very like neoliberally like post-Obama loves everyone on at face value, but there is a very dark history behind like, you know, like be like minoritized populations out here. And so it makes me really intrigued to see like what that looks like. And maybe what if that trend exists here? Because like 
I don't know, San Diego is not necessarily the like a place where there are a lot of black people, but there are certain people in certain areas. And I know that there has been like a KKK presence at some point, which means that, you know, it may not be black people, but there are other people that have existed. And like, it would be interesting to see that movement in general. In your article, you use the word disposability. And, you know, I'd heard that word in reference to to people, but when you start thinking about it and thinking about how space was allotted African-Americans post-Civil War during the, um, you know, post-bellum in um, the eight years that the the federal government was in the South, kind of making sure everybody was getting along, <laughs> the federal troops are called out and then Jim Crow kicks in and all that starts to get curtailed and land starts get taken taken back. And so then the land that's being allotted to the African-American people is awful, right? And nobody wanted to live there to begin with. And so speaking of disposability and, and looking at not only the land, but the view of the people, and you, you said the use the word black spatial imaginary, and it's just really a brilliant sort of way to look at space and landscape, but yeah. it's like, but they're just completely disregarding existence of people. It's it's like, I like, well, so I think it's really interesting that you point that out because I find like when I was talking about disp- disposability, I didn't find it to be the like last step or like the final like feeling or vibe, I guess, of like what was happening there. Like I felt like it was like a means to erasure you know, yeah. which is a very common way of just, you know, I mean, it's part of that line of dehumanization where you just kind of like want to eliminate the like ID ideal of like a certain peoples or like, like ideology or whatnot. And so it's kind of that like way of like erasing a population while they're still there. But like, once they're not there, you don't have to think about them. Right. Anymore. It's done. Yeah. And so, wow. It's just like, so crazy to think about it in those terms yeah it's all connected and like wow i'm just like like brain blast it's interesting to see how that cycle kind of has repeated itself you know and how this framework kind of plays out in the context in which we exist in which is a capitalist society that is that prioritizes like white supremacy and like that is just how this came to be and how long, I mean, I guess the question still remains is like, how long will it continue to do that, you know? And who decides who matters, what matters, and when and why, you know? Um, uh, yeah, it just kind of blew my mind how how these spaces are considered by the general public. Um, like even going into the, one of those cemeteries was considered unsafe, you know, whether or not you would be unsafe or not. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty good at doing my own risk assessment. It it's the idea that like there is something like there is a story that is told about this space without there even being a person to tell it you know yeah. the narrative carries and that's what like even when you think about like kind of like the examples that you just gave of like Gainesville i can you can name that about like literally philly anywhere in louisiana you know mm-hmm. like anywhere that there are black populations it is usually a land like a piece of land that no one wanted to live on right if you think about it in the context of like 2023 in 
where the idea of like environmental racism happens, you know, and exists, it's one of those spaces, you know, that it kind of goes hand in hand with that, where it's like, you are having spills, you know, like, while Evergreen is like, a place for the dead. I don't know, the people who live in like black spaces, like I'm thinking of like Anacostia in DC, like people can go into that water, right? Like people can't swim in there. It's actually toxic. And like, you think about as civilization, we build houses or we like settle near water because it's a resource. Like, how is it that we are placing people strategically? I mean, I wouldn't say that this it's not a, there's not a concerted effort, effort behind this because like, how is it that it's the same in like some different parts? Right. Of the yeah, it was intentional. Yeah, like how is it that like, uh, like the indigenous population in like near the border here in San Diego is still struggling with the same like environment? Well, not the same environmental problems, but like exposure, like the risk of like environmental exposure to like chemicals that are yep. like you know that is like military waste, uh, like which is similar to how like people in Anacostia live in Southeast, you know, where they are also exposed to like random chemicals that they shouldn't be exposed to because like they live ne- next to like the waste disposal, like part uh, mm-hmm. factory or whatever it's called. And like the Anacostia river, which is disgusting, you know, like, so that it's just so hard to see this story and this narrative kind of like play out in all like different parts of America where there is that division and it, is there like you know if you if you know the signs you can recognize it but if you're not like if you don't you could just be like ah like things are getting better whatever like you have the idea of like it's like that like ignorance is bliss vibe that exists in america like you could choose to ignore all of the things around you but you are also choosing to ignore the like narrative and the history that exists and choosing to move as if there weren't people before you which is also like a very imperialist like yeah way of moving you know and it just embodies all of those ideals and kind of makes that cycle go on over and over again yeah i don't uh, where what is the silver lining like i don't want to just talk about the bad like where is the joy so what in your experience and i know this was a couple of years ago with evergreen but what in your experience is something good that's coming out with at least highlighting this history I'll say that, like, the idea that there is discourse around it is so meaningful, you know, the idea that, like, like, part of the, like, what keeps the imaginary going is who controls the narrative and how it's told, right? And the more people that know about it and the more people that can, like, have a discourse, whether it be good or bad or whether it can take that conversation contains a nuance that it, that includes like the context in which it exists in or not you know that discourse is still happening and I feel like as like I'm not the biggest like democracy person just as a <laughs> person like it's just really hard to say that like we embody all of the like ideals of like even a representative democracy of or whatever the heck we are but you know in keeping that going which we are by still participating in the system we have the we have the autonomy of changing these things even though it's really really hard and really expensive and really like honestly impossible but like not impossible because like right. you can about it and the smallest thing that you could do is talk about it because there are people whose job it is to make sure that something happens to this land right like there are zoning laws you know there are like your city councilman or your mayor or whoever controls the like who does the zoning stuff 
you can talk to and you can ask them, why are these decisions made this way, right? You can have, you can extend this conversation to people who you may not necessarily think are important in this context right now. Like while we're talking about the stakeholders in like the cemeteries, yes, it is the folks who have passed on, but, and their families who like keep their memory living, but who else is interested in this space? What do they want to do with this space? And what's the idea with this? Like I, remember that like when like we were having this conversation with enrichment i was really offended by the fact that they were thinking about turning in into a yoga studio because they said that they i would also be offended yes i was like why would you want to do yoga over like like in a cemetery and that's kind of like why i went hard on the idea of sacred versus profane because like I love yoga. Like I am a very big yoga person, but I find it a little profane to be doing that in a cemetery, you know, where like Maggie Walker is buried, like, come on, have some respect. But like, not everyone has that, has those ideals. So it's important to like communicate that. That being said, like, it's not necessarily the job of the people who are affected by it. Right. It's not the job of like people who have to keep this memory alive. And I think that especially in like the African-American community, there is like, a very big emphasis on like storytelling and passing on a narrative to your descendants, but also keeping the like idea of like your ancestors alive. And I like, well, my family's originally from Ethiopia. And so while it's not necessarily connected to the African-American idea, well, the parts of Africa that like a lot of like traditional, like African-American ideals come from, whereas like where that's like usually West Africa, it's, there's still like a central, like, tenant that exists where we honor our ancestors and i think that goes pre that's pre-religion pre-christianity pre-whatever you know pre-colonialism and i think that that is something that's carried on and will continue to carry on so like i think that we have the like opportunity to really exercise that um ability to tell that story but also make sure that the narrative it contains that nuance and be and like also use the like rights that we are supposed to have and kind of like challenge that to see what we can do with these spaces and realize that we have the control over it. And I think what was kind of like disheartening about Evergreen was the fact that like people were aware, like the descendants of people were aware of like these graves being desecrated, but didn't really feel like that they needed to do anything because it was kind of like, it felt like it was out of their hands. What's important to remember is that we do have the power to and we also have the responsibility and whether we like it or not it is something that we carry on by just giving it like lip service right now by talking about it so like why not do something about it yeah that's you're absolutely right and that's one of the big things that i'm kind of looking at researching is stewardship and who has the right to be a steward to a sacred space of a a different ethnicity yeah like we still exist in this capitalist system Mm -hmm. you know if you care like if you care about something and you want it, like you can assign value to it by like, I don't know, just generating that. And so that social capital still is there, even if a place is like con- like considered to be a profane space or not to have that much social capital, like the more like pri- privilege or whatever you add to it, it can grow, you know, yeah. in and so it's just important to recognize the power dynamics that like existed back then, but that's still power the way that like, the context that the space exists in now you know and that's kind of how space in general works you know mm-hmm. like i like it if you look at gentrification like that's the whole weird thing about it is that like spaces that were like 
a decade ago or two decades ago considered to be like blighted and like needed to be like destroyed or whatever they stay they get renovated they go on hgtv and then they (laughs) happen to like add five hundred thousand dollars yeah exactly and like urban is cute now but like there was a point where urban was not cute and urban was a bad word you know and that was only like 15 years ago and like i don't know people were subjected to like whatever backlash that brought you know and so it's interesting to really like pay attention to those power dynamics and also like really crit like think critically about what it actually means and what you're communicating when you say those things and like whether it adds value or like how much what value it holds you know and whether that's like actually sustainable and I think that like if we think about these spaces in a critical manner and if we really like consider like think of ways to merge like it's like I guess like material value where like it how much it it's worth or whatever and wage that with like it's like cultural value by whoever controls the space or whether it's a collaboration or coalition like however you consider to hold the space within your like imaginary like I think that like once we start to like merge those things or be able to like I don't know at least like provide a correlation in those relationships like we can move so we can get somewhere and we're kind of doing that by bringing attention to these like issues you know and these spaces in general so like thank you for the work that you do and like I don't know like this is really like brought like well, I know it's been years, but like, honestly, like I'm thinking about doing my PhD and my PhD wants to, like, I want to like concentrate on like disposable spaces still, because like, it just like, it's what keeps me up at night, you know, like it just is. And living in San Diego, like I've been really lucky enough to do work at the border and like, to look at the spaces, just like the land out there and how different that is, but like also very similar it is to like, the spaces that we're talking about right now, you know? And it just seems to be a trend and it's the way that this country's history has worked out for the past 500 years. And it seems to continue to go that way until like people like read, like start talking about it and start making changes. And back in the day, actually back like a hundred years ago, folks like you and I were not able to tell these stories the way that we, that we're telling them now. And right. so it's important to seize that moment and tell those stories, you know? Wow. That's awesome. That's a great place to wrap it up. Thank you. But I would really love to continue this conversation. Me too. And, yeah. Like, I think that like, yeah, thank you so much for reaching out. And like it, it, like, despite the year it's taken to have this conversation, it has been so delightful to talk to you. And absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to make this a regular thing or just like, I don't know, like maybe we could write a paper together. I don't I would know. Love that. Yeah. I would absolutely so, love that. Yeah, I guess keep in touch. But um, if you're free in the next couple of months, I know the holidays are coming up. Like, would love to like keep talking. So let's do it. Let's absolutely do it. Reach out to me anytime. For sure, for sure. All right. Well, thank you again. You're amazing, and I hope you <laughs> have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Enjoy. It's still morning for you. You got the whole day ahead of you. I know. I've got so much to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye, bye, Nardos. Bye. bye. Such an incredible conversation I had with Nardos. It was really powerful and it was, you know, maybe a start of a a good friendship here, an academic friendship from across the vastness of the United States of America. 
She, I don't know if you caught it, but she referenced a another author by the name of George Lipsitz. He wrote an article, uh, 2007, called The Racialization of Space and the Spatialization of Race, Theorizing the Hidden Architecture of Landscape. It was in the Landscape Journal, Volume 26, uh, again from 2007, University of Wisconsin Press. Basically, what he's addressing in this article is that the idea that segregation went way beyond water fountains and schools and even after desegregation that particular landscapes and particular places were still treated with that sort of segregated mentality and that expanded on into even things like cemeteries um, and sacred spaces and we can certainly see that in Gainesville in the difference between what's happening in East Gainesville versus what's happening west of Waldo Road. For those of y'all that aren't familiar with how segregated Gainesville is, Waldo Road is a highway that runs on the east side of town, um, and it essentially separates East Gainesville from West Gainesville, but East Gainesville has been a majority African-American section of town, and it's, among many other things, it's a food desert, and for years... The community has been trying to acquire a grocery store to move in there. There were a f there were small grocery store like places there that have closed, are boarded up, are falling down, but they've never acquired something larger. And after speaking with some well-known architects in Gainesville area, it's not just because of the perceived socioeconomics of the community. It goes deeper into this piece of land itself and that the land is just not quality. It's not stable enough to hold something like a large scale grocery store. So that speaks to the racialization of space. So historically, they were provided a segregated area for the for their community to develop. And, you know, of course, there is the Porter's community. Of course, there's the Pleasant Street. And these are all traditional historic African-American communities that are within the city limits of Gainesville. However, East Gainesville, it's wet, it's not well drained, so it's not ideal location for a heavy infrastructure needed place like a, a large grocery store. It's beyond the socioeconomics. It, it moves into how these spaces were originally perceived. In our article, Nardos wonderfully goes into the disposability of not only people, but the disposability of, of space. I don't want to spoil too much of the article. I hope you can read it, and I will link to it in the show notes. But it's fantastic. So I thank you again, Nardos. Anyways, that's the show for today. Um, like I said, we're going to get back to regularly scheduled episodes, hopefully. But I'm going to try my best to get back to regularly scheduled episodes just a quick plug before I get out of here. In February 8th and 9th of 2024, the Florida Public Archaeology Network Central Region, which is myself and Mandy, alongside the West Central Region, will be hosting the Crypt 2024 conference. Crypt is Cemetery Resource Protection Training, and that will be held at Depot Park. There'll be a link in the show notes for all that information. It'll be great to have a lot of folks on board for that. It's going to be a wonderful conference with lots of guest speakers. Um, the first day and then the second day will be a hands-on in the field resource training opportunity for folks. So check it out. 
That'll be great. So thank you, listeners, for tuning in. I know it's been too long. So you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Spotify, as well as Instagram and Facebook. Like us and, of course, share. I would love some social media interaction, and we'll give you a shout-out, of course. Um, you can reach us at thematerialistpodcast at gmail.com. That's thematerialistpodcast at gmail.com. Of course, thank you to USF and the USF Department of Anthropology. Thank you to all the FPAN regions. For more info on FPAN, please go to fpan.us. Intro and outro music is Silver in the Age of Opulence, used by permission from the fantastic Bradenton Band, Have Gun Will Travel. You can find more information about them on the web at hgwt music.com thank you to edward gonzalez tenant and nardos e iob for coming on the show and i look forward to talking to both of y'all in the future um if you'd like us to cover anything special just give me a shout reach out to me again materialistpodcast at gmail.com and we can get that going for you it's been great to be behind the mic again i'll do it again soon i will catch y'all on the flippity flip